Hey, thanks for downloading and listening to the New Life Church Downtown Podcast. We'd love to stay connected on Instagram at NLC Downtown Little Rock or TikTok at NLC Downtown. We have devotionals, audio from our weekend messages, conversations about big topics and culture today, and lots of options for you to become a disciple of Jesus. We aren't just a Sunday church. We want to be here for you Monday through Saturday too. Looking forward to getting to know you better. It is so good to be here at New Life Church. How many of y'all love your church? Show of hands. Here we go. Yeah. This is New Life. There is no place like New Life. I remember when I came here 13 years ago or so, and I was just a little babe in Christ. Me and Bronson, we drove down to Arkansas, and I will never forget the indelible imprint that was left on my heart when I experienced the excellence the empowerment and the evangelism infused within the DNA of this church. But above all, what I was amazed with then, and I'm still amazed with today, is when I come here, I know that this is a believing church. This is a church full of faith. This is a church that still believes that God is moving and changing people's lives. This is a church that still believes that God is bringing together people of different races, cultures, and ethnicities to worship God under the same roof. This is a church that believes that God is still in the business of healing marriages, healing relationships, healing communities, and healing lives. This is a believing church. You guys can clap for that. You're a part of a believing church. And not only that, not only that, this church produces some great leaders. I mean, from Rick Bazette to the campus pastors to the lay leaders and lay staff, these are people who are full of of character and integrity, who love Jesus. But of course, my favorite pastor is none other than your campus pastor, Bronson Duke. I've known Bronson since I was in high school. We, We have walked through so many stages of life together. Bronson has been there in my sin at my salvation, my sanctification, and Lord knows Bronson will probably be there during my glorification. I mean, Bronson has led me, he has loved me, and he has laughed with me throughout my journey with Jesus, and I know he has done the same with you. Bronson loves to laugh. And Bronson and Callie, man, they have two little twins. They are the cutest, Roman and Judah. And they show up each and every Sunday with a smile on their face. Those little babies, they threw up on me. It was real nice. (laughs) But these are some great people. This is a great couple. They love you. They love the church. And they love the Lord. Can we just pause and give them a round of applause for all that they do for this church? So let us take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you so much for everything you've done for us, for gathering us together today, for, uh, yeah, bringing us together to worship you and love you. And we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have a relationship with you. And we thank you, Lord, for sending the gift of your Holy Spirit to empower us and anoint us for ministry. So I pray, Lord, that you empower me and anoint me to preach your word. 
And I pray that each and every person in this room, Lord, that you would soften their hearts and that you, Lord, would reveal yourself to them so that they can have an encounter with you this morning. In your precious name, amen, amen. Woo! Thank you, Brandon. It made me extra spiritual. I love it. <laughs> so, Bronson has been talking to you guys about who Jesus was. You know, his character, his competency, all the stuff he did, who he was. And what I've been commissioned to do is, is to speak on the very easy topic, why did they want to kill Jesus? Now, I'm... Uh, I, Let's just be honest and frank with Pastor Bronson. This is not an easy topic to talk about. It's, it's difficult for several reasons. But one of the major reasons that it's challenging is this. We have so many, in our culture, we have so many preconceived pictures and preferences of who Jesus was and what he came to do that we often can't imagine wanting to hurt Jesus. We're like Ricky Bobby in the movie Talladega Nights, where they're at the dinner table, and Ricky Bobby is with his family and his friends, and they're praying to Jesus. And they all have their particular version of Jesus that they like, right? So Ricky prefers the baby Jesus. His wife and grandpa prefer the bearded Jesus. The son is like the ninja Jesus. And Dale, his best friend, is the party Jesus who wears a tuxedo t-shirt, right? <laughs> So we all are like that. We all like this version of Jesus that is warm and cuddly and we can cozy up to and makes us feel good inside. We like the stuffed animal Jesus where we pull the string and he says a couple of nice phrases like love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, and the list could go on and on and on. You see, we all prefer a particular version of Jesus that is so safe it's so sanitized, it's so meek and mild that we couldn't imagine wanting to kill him. We imagine Jesus to look something like this, right? Blonde hair, blue eyes, golden boy, and with someone that looks like that, you're like, we would never want to hurt this guy. But the real Jesus, the real Jesus of the Gospels, he wasn't like that. He wasn't a stuffed animal. He wasn't like the version of Ricky Bobby. Man, he was radical. He offended people. He got in people's faces and he called them the devil. He said, get behind me, Satan, to his best friend. He said, you are like your father, the devil. As C.S. Lewis once said, speaking of Aslan, who's a portrayal of Jesus, he said, Aslan's good, but he certainly isn't safe. And something that I want to just explore together today is this. Jesus confronts, Jesus turns over the tables of our hearts, and he confronts our idolatry. I'm going to say that again. Jesus turns over the tables of our hearts and he confronts our idolatry, and that is why they wanted to kill him. Let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark eleven fifteen through 18. I'll give you some time to get there. So here's what we read. 
On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as, and as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Whew. This is a radical picture of Jesus. And there's a lot going on here. So what I want to do is paint a picture of what is happening leading up to that point so we can wrap our heads around just how radical this moment actually is. So here's what's happening. In Mark 11, 1 through 10, Jesus is riding into town on a little donkey. And people absolutely adore him. I mean, they love him. They are throwing their cloaks on the ground. They are waving palm trees in the air. They are yelling, Jesus, Hosanna in the highest. There is no one like you. Hail King Jesus in the name of the house of David. They love him. And as king, Jesus arrives to the temple in this scene for the first time. And he makes an assessment of the temple. He checks it all out. And then he decides to leave and go to Bethany with his disciples because it was late and Jesus needs a nap. I know, Callie, you need a nap, girl. So here's the thing. After that, the next day, he decides to leave Bethany and head back towards the temple. But on his way to the temple, there is this scene where Jesus encounters a fig tree, and it is brutal. It is Jesus at one of his most fierce and ferocious. And we're going to come back to that at the end of the sermon, but know that he encounters this fig tree right before he enters the temple. And then Jesus enters the temple, and he does something radical, something that we don't expect, something that defies our expectations doesn't fit into our boxes and category. Rather than go and pray at the temple or ponder theology at the temple or post pictures of himself on Instagram at the temple, what does Jesus do? He enters the temple, turns over the tables, drives out the money changers. Jesus goes to the temple to clean house. So the question that we have to ask ourselves as a church, as the people of God, why did Jesus clean house? Because it seems strange if you think about it, right? The temple was this thriving business. It was the center of all economic activity in all of Israel. It was a church that was turning a profit on everything that it was producing. So why was Jesus so upset? One word, idolatry. Now, some of you might be thinking, I don't see idols in this text. I don't see what you're talking about, Tad. Help me out here. So, because most of us, when we think of idols or idolatry, what we think of is either Simon Cow with American Idol, I'm showing my age, or, <laughs> come on, Neil, I know you love that show. <laughs> or we think of ancient statues, right? We think of these ancient statues that old people worship, and it's super antiquated, not relatable. I don't get this. But here's the thing. 
The biblical idea of idolatry is far more sophisticated, subtle, and nuanced than that. The biblical idea of idolatry is this. It's a heart orientation and attitude towards something that you deeply want or desire. It says in Ezekiel 14.3 that the elders of Israel, they fashioned idols in their hearts. Now, I want everyone to get this because it's very important. Idolatry occurs when your heart, it takes a good thing, and it takes a good thing like anything, success, money, power, fame, family, friends, any good thing that God has given you, and your heart begins to elevate it and turn it into an ultimate thing. And you look to that thing and you say, this is what's going to bring me meaning and purpose and safety and satisfaction in life. And what you do is eventually replace God or Jesus with that thing. And here's the truth about idols. The greater the thing, so your family, your friendships, your children, the greater the good, the more likely it is to become an idol in your life. And the more likely it is for you to become mean and murderous towards anybody who attempts to confront your idol. So let me give you an example of how this plays out for my own life. So I'm going to be honest with you. I gained a little bit of weight during COVID, a little bit. Okay, I've lied already. I gained a lot of weight during COVID. I'm not talking about like one or two pounds. I'm talking about upwards of 20 pounds. It was a lot of weight. You know, I would bend down and try to like tie my shoes and get out of breath and still get a little out of breath. It's, it's, it's about progress, not perfection here. So, so and, and I would get out of breath playing with my kids. You know, I have a three-year-old, Audrey, and a one-year-old, Theo. Oh, such cute little kids. I love them to death. I think they're watching right now. But, um, hi, baby. <laughs> um, so, where, you know, I would get out of breath playing with them. And, and here's the thing. Audrey, she is the sweetest little angel. I love her to death. But Audrey is like Jesus. She will tell it to you straight. You know, she sees something on your face, she points it out, right? She's the kind of girl who issues a whole lot of medicine and a very little bit of sugar. You know what I'm talking about? It, that's Audrey. And so this one day, we were wrestling. And my version of wrestling back then was to lay on the ground like this, while the kids would just climb all over me. It required the least amount of movement possible, right? That was the point. And, and, here's, and here's what happened. Audrey started climbing all over me, and then she made her way to my stomach. And she gets on my stomach, and she starts to grab my hands like this, like that. And then she goes like this. And she goes, yells at the top of her lungs, watch out, everyone. Daddy's tummy is wobbly. Oh. <laughs> and, 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 it was, and it was in that moment that God spoke through Audrey and said, get your life back into shape. So I, I got a food journal. I joined a CrossFit gym. And how many of you, you, how do you know when someone joins a CrossFit gym? 
Don't worry, you do not have to ask. They will tell you. Trust me, I became that guy. I you know, started watching what I was eating, and then I started working out, and I started losing weight. Now, this is a good thing, is it not? Losing weight. But as one author said, our hearts are like idle factories. We will literally turn anything into an idol. And that's what happened to me. I took this good thing, I made it into an ultimate thing, and it absolutely consumed me. I mean, I started meticulously logging everything I was eating. I started working out, this is not a lie, one, not one time a day, not two times a day, but three times a day. And I was watching YouTube videos of different workouts. It literally consumed me. And then this one morning, my wife, she's in the kitchen, and she says to me, Tad, I feel lonely. And in that moment, my heart got a little irritated. You know what I'm talking about? If you're married and your wife says something and you're like, something is coming down the line. I got irritated and defensive a little bit. And I said, what is wrong with a clenched fist? And then she said this. She said, ever since you started CrossFit, we just don't have that much time in the mornings to talk anymore. And in that moment, my heart went from irritation to inflamed. And I said something along the lines of this. You know what I'm trying to do here, Nicole? I'm trying to lose weight. I'm trying to get in shape. I'm trying to be better for my family and for you. It's not CrossFit. We didn't even spend that much time together in the mornings anyway. Whoo! Inflamed. You see what happens? We can all kind of relate to something like this. But here's what happened. My heart took a good thing, working out, getting in shape, and it turned it into an ultimate thing. Once I get that thing, then I'll feel confident, worthwhile, good about myself. And then Nicole called out the effects of my idolatry on her. And what happened? My heart got mean and murderous. And this is the exact same thing that happened to the Jews of Jesus' day. They made the, the temple into an idol. I'm not talking about they didn't fashion idols in the temple. Their hearts became idolatrous towards it. You see this, and this is an important point to understand, the temple was originally this good gift from God. It was given to the Jewish people to house his presence. It started in the garden, moved to the tabernacle, and was established during the monarchy. It was a good thing, a great thing. But, and this is a very big but, the temple became more about power and profit than it did the presence of God. It became more about exchange and exclusion than it did the extravagant grace and welcome of the Creator. It became more about hollow religiosity than it did true spirituality. The Jews of Jesus' day loved the temple more than the God of the temple. And what we see in this scene is a furious Jesus confronting a failed system, 
a system that has just stopped working. How many of you in your life have something that has just stopped working? I'm not talking about your microwave, your toaster oven, or anything like that. I'm talking about real things in your life, like relationships with your friends, relationship with your children, your church, your spouse, things that are beginning to break down and decay because your heart has taken a good thing and turned it into an ultimate thing. How many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have chased after our careers at the expense of our family, our husband, our wife, our friends, and our children? How many of us have sought after influence wherever that influence can be found? and We climb over and crush people on our way to get it. How many of us are consumed with being busy with all this church activity that we don't become more loving towards people, we become more divisive and judgmental towards people of God. See, our idols always overpromise and they underdeliver and they wreak havoc in our life and in other people's lives. Things in your life, when your heart is consumed by idolatry, they will just stop working. And Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, he will have absolutely none of this. Because what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, it says that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You house the presence of God. And when Jesus enters into your life, what does he do? He begins to clean house. He begins to rearrange the furniture. He begins to turn over tables. He begins to confront sin in your life. Because as C.S. Lewis once said, Jesus is the great iconoclast. Jesus comes into our lives and breaks down our idols. Our idols that cause us to rot and decay internally. That's the real Jesus. So let me ask you a question. What are some of the idols in your heart? What are those things, those good things, that you have turned into an ultimate thing? And here's something. What are those things in your life when, when you're confronted on them, you begin to get mean and murderous? Or think about it this way. What in my life is beginning to break down or not work? So when Jesus, when he enters the temple, what exactly does he confront? And when he enters into us, our temple, what exactly does he confront? This passage shows us that Jesus will always confront at least three things when he enters into us, when he comes into our lives. Here we go. First, Jesus confronts the exclusion of our idolatry. Jesus confronts the exclusion of our idolatry. So this passage, it tells us that Jesus 
entered the temple area, right? Now, the temple area, if you don't know, the temple area was the biggest part of the temple. And you had to go through the temple courts to get to all the rest of the parts of the temple. And this was the only place that the Gentiles were allowed to worship. And so this is the only place, too, where the Jews decided to set up all of their business operations right here in the court of the Gentiles. And imagine, they were buying and selling thousands of dollars worth of animals. They were exchanging thousands of dollars worth of currency. And it was like the craziness of our financial floors in Wall Street, and then you add livestock into the mix, and this was the place where the Gentiles were supposed to find God through quiet reflection and prayer. And Jesus enters into the temple, and his reaction to all this is to turn over the tables, to throw over the furniture, and he quoted from the prophet Isaiah, he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, that is, the Gentiles. And we are told that the people were amazed at this, and the leaders were afraid. Why? Because like us, they had a popular idea of what the Messiah would be like when he entered the temple. Their idea of the Messiah was when he entered the temple, he would clear out the temple of all the Gentiles. But here is Jesus in this text clearing out the temple for the Gentiles. He's acting as their advocate. You see, what we see in this text is Jesus is creating a culture of radical inclusion over and against the Pharisees' culture of extreme exclusion. You see, idolatry always excludes. In Matthew's gospel, it's even worse. The blind and the lame were excluded from the temple. See, when we fixate on one thing or ideal, we inevitably exclude and marginalize other people. The Jews did this with the Gentiles. They excluded them. And we do this today. How many of us? And we have this way of doing church that feels comfortable and safe for us, that when a newcomer comes in, we don't include them because we're afraid that they're going to mess up the culture that we're trying to create. Or how many of us have this friend group at small, small group or church or Bible study or some, some type of sporting activity and when a new person comes in, we're friendly to them, but we make no effort to actually bring them in to our community. Jesus says no more. No more exclusion. No more oppression. No more marginalization. Not in my church. Not in my people. Not in my temple. I came, Jesus is saying, to tear the veil of the temple in two. So that all people, regardless of race, culture, or ethnicity, can worship God under the same roof. 
As Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Now listen, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have boundaries. I'm not saying that you shouldn't avoid toxic people or have a close-knit group of friends. What I am asking you to consider, is there an idol forming in your heart that is causing exclusion towards other people? If that's the case, then Jesus is saying, we need to make some changes. Some furniture needs to be rearranged in your heart so that you can make room for others. We need to make room for others. Second, Jesus confronts the costliness of our idolatry. Colossians 3 says that greed is idolatry. And greed is what overtook the temple. Josephus, an ancient historian, tells us that in one year, 350,000 lambs or animals, were bought, sold, and sacrificed at the temple during the Passover. And oftentimes, these animals were sold way overpriced. So the Gentiles, the lame, the sick, the blind, they had to pay a very steep price just to obtain an animal so they could sacrifice an animal and connect with God. You see, idolatry always makes us overpay. It makes a massive promise to us, raises the stakes, and makes us pay dearly for what we truly want. Let me give you an example of how this plays out. When I was in grad school, it started off really good. I had a good heart. I wanted to serve God. I wanted to study. You know, like it was a good, good thing. But then it became idolatrous, and I started to get consumed by a vision. And that vision was, was me with more degrees than a thermometer. I'm talking about like so many letters behind my names, MA, BA, PhD, you name it. And I said, if I get that thing, if I get all that behind my name, then when I speak or when I contribute to things, people are going to listen to me. They're going to think I have something of significance to say. I'm going to be somebody. And I had to pay dearly for that idol. I mean, I would pay, pull all-nighters. I would skip out on social events, skip out on church. I would neglect my marriage and my wife. It was bad, but it was the price my idol demanded I pay and it demanded even more when I entered into ministry and even more when I entered into business. And that pattern of overpaying wrecked havoc in my life. So let me ask you, are you tired of overpaying for the idol that you're serving? Jesus came to put an end to all of our overpayment. Jesus came to pay the ultimate price, to buy us with his blood, so that we could have a relationship that is not based on bargaining, but is based on his blood, so that we could come to him as sons and daughters. 
Because here's the truth about Jesus. Jesus is the only God of the universe who when you find him, he will truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, he will actually forgive you. He doesn't make you overpay. Finally, Jesus confronts the emptiness of our idolatry. So remember I told you there was this scene of Jesus encountering a fig tree right before he enters the temple. It's here that I want to close. So here's what's happening. Jesus is on his way to the temple. He's with his disciples. And off in the distance, he sees this fig tree. And Jesus is hungry. And so Jesus, because there's leaves, he begins to approach the tree to look to see if there's any fruit, any little nodules. This is the fruit produced before figs come into season. And when Jesus gets up to the tree, he doesn't find any fruit. So he does something radical, something that defies our expectations. It doesn't fit into our categories. Jesus curses a seemingly innocent tree. Here's what the text tells us. It says, Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. What is Jesus doing? He's cursing a fig tree. It seems so mean and emotional. Like, what is going on? Here's what's happening. From a distance, this tree looked okay. It had sprouted leaves. But if a tree sprouted leaves but didn't produce any of those little nodules, you would know that something was wrong. It might look okay from a distance, but when you get up close to it and find that it has no fruit, you would know that it was diseased or dying inside. So what is Jesus showing us? He's telling us this, that growth without fruit is a sign of decay. So when Jesus gets to the temple, a place that like a lot of churches are very, very busy, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of coming and going and interactions, people doing this and that. But Jesus found for all the activity, there was no spirituality. Jesus is saying, that no one actually had a life with God. No one, the text tells us, was praying. You see, when we love other things more than God, when we love our idols more than God, our hearts can't serve both of those things, so our spiritual acts become fruitless and hollow and empty. Jesus is saying to you and me, listen, I want your heart, not just your hurry. I don't want just your busyness. I want real life change that comes from knowing how much I love you. So let me ask you, are you an anxious person or worried person? Are you learning to wait on Jesus? Is that fruit 
being produced in your life? Are you an angry or unforgiving person? Is it obvious to people that you are learning to bear the cost of forgiveness? Are you a prideful person? Are you learning humility? So everyone, why did they want to kill Jesus? They wanted to kill Jesus because he turned over the tables of their hearts and he confronted their idolatry and he does that with us today. He confronts the exclusion of our idolatry. He confronts the costliness of our idolatry and he confronts the emptiness of our idolatry. So in closing, here's what I want to do. I want you to reflect on one area of your life that could be an idol. I mean, it could be anything. I mean, it could be your obsession with your kid's success. It could be your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It could even be, man, your job or career. Say, Lord, what is beginning to replace you in my life? What am I looking to to bring me meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life? And ask yourself, where is fruit being quenched? Where is fruit not growing? Where is this idol causing my fruit to stop being produced in my life? Where am I not patient anymore? Where am I not loving anymore? And where do I just get so, so easily angered? Ask the Holy Spirit to draw attention to that idol. And then here is my prayer in this time for you, that you would allow Jesus to remove that idol and replace it with himself. Because Jesus... And some of you need to hear this. Jesus is the only source of everlasting joy and satisfaction and peace that your heart will ever find. Jesus loves you. Jesus has a plan for you. Jesus wants to be all for you. Can we get an amen to that? Come to Jesus. Drink from Jesus. You will be fulfilled. You will be satisfied. He never, ever, ever lets us down. So let me pray that over you right now. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray right now that you would begin to draw attention to things in people's lives that could potentially be an idol in their life, where fruit just isn't being produced like it used to. And Lord, I pray right now in your name, Lord, that you would remove that idol and replace it with yourself in their heart. And Lord, give them a sense of your presence this morning. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for everything that you are. In your precious name, amen.